We're on page 1137. 1137. The reading is from Romans chapter 10, verses 5 to 17. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend to the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As scripture says, Anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing a message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. So we're going to look together at that uh, passage that was read for us from um, Romans uh, chapter 10. Let me pray and then we'll come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you love us. Uh, You love us so much that you sent your son, your living word. Thank you that you love us so much that you speak to us through the scriptures We pray that you would give us hearts and minds that are ready to hear and obey your word to us today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Rachel and I serve um, with the Church Missionary Society of Australia, CMS Australia. Uh, CMS Australia and Crosslinks, which is our um, mission society here, have their roots uh, in the early years of CMS in the UK. And so our heritage is a heritage that is filled with stories of people who have made extraordinary sacrifices in their service of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the early years of CMS's history, two years were particularly painful. Those years were 1823 and 1894. In 1823, CMS in the UK was still a very young society. It had been sending missionaries for less than 20 years. And those early years saw great gospel gains, but also great gospel sacrifices. 
1823, 12 new missionaries arrived in what today is called Sierra Leone in West Africa. But within 18 months, 10 out of 12 of them had died. When the news of the first tragic deaths reached London, uh, the committee that was overseeing CMS at that stage uh, were almost crushed with sorrow. Uh, The account of their meeting reports that at first they just gazed at each other across the table. Then they knelt together in prayer and one of the leading lay members said in a uh, a tone of deep feeling and firm resolve, we must not abandon West Africa. A couple of years later, uh, of the 79 missionaries who had gone to West Africa, only 14 were still on the field. A few had returned home, but the vast majority had died in service. Well, that story doesn't end there. If you jump forward to 1894, and by then the gospel had grown in extraordinary ways across West Africa. Thousands and thousands of people in what is now Nigeria had professed faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, And a lot of that growth was under the leadership of the first black African bishop, Samuel Ajayi Crowther. He'd been a guiding force in gospel growth and exercised a ministry that lasted over 70 years. His death in 1891 left a huge gap in the West African church. And after a long process, Joseph Hill was nominated as a replacement for Bishop Crowther. This is the account of what happened. It was arranged to send out with Bishop and Mrs. Hill two more laymen and five single women to Yoruba and three clergymen and two single women for the Niger Delta. This would give the bishop a fair staff to start off with. Party sailed at the end of the year and reached Lagos on December the 13th. On January the 6th, 1894, the society received a telegram of only six words, Bishop and Mrs. Hill at rest. They died within four weeks of landing in Africa. The Archbishop of Canterbury, who had only just consecrated Bishop Hill, wrote, I feel utterly stricken by this terrible news. But that's also not the end of the story. Tragically, telegrams continued to flow, and they announced one after the other the death of the Reverend Matthias on January the 17th, Reverend Vernal on January the 20th, Reverend Seeley on the 21st, and of Miss Mansbridge on the 23rd. All of them died from yellow fever. One other woman survived the illness, but had to return to England. For the team that had been planning to go to the Niger Delta, only one person survived, and he went on alone. You can imagine that supporters in England wanted to meet, to grieve, and to pray, and at one of those meetings... Uh, a local bishop said these words. He said, some of you might ask, might not the men who have given their lives for Africa have done longer and more useful work in our home parishes? Why this waste? Brethren, let us not take up words from the mouth of Judas Iscariot. I wonder whether you think the bishop was right. Was it the voice of Judas to suggest that 
those people should have stayed at home? Was he right to claim that those lives weren't wasted? Well, in God's grace, the story doesn't end there. And we know how it came to a conclusion. Because if you jump forward to today, Nigeria, the country where so many missionaries from so many different uh, societies laid down their lives, is now undoubtedly at the centre of the world church. Nigeria today, there are tens of millions of Christian men and women. And this morning, there will be more people attending Anglican churches in Nigeria than in the whole of the UK, the United States, Australia and New Zealand combined. It's an extraordinary story, isn't it? And what amazes me as I hear that story is that men and women went on offering for missionary service year after year, knowing how many of their colleagues died. And it amazes me that for over a hundred years, mission societies were willing to go on sending them. Why for over a hundred years were people willing to keep offering to serve Jesus in West Africa? And why for over a hundred years were mission societies willing to keep sending them? Well, the answer to that question is really a very simple one. And the answer is, they believed Romans 10. There's a chain of logic in Romans chapter 10 that is the fundamental motivation for that mission work. The same chain of logic that motivated people like Joseph Hill and people like Bishop Crowther is also our logic today. And these verses teach us why they were willing to witness for Jesus Christ as they did and what it means for us today to be witnesses to the Lord Jesus. So let me take you through the chain of logic in these verses And Paul's argument in Romans 10 flows on from all that he's said already in the letter in chapters 1 to 9. We can't go through that in detail. But at the heart of his argument, of course, in Romans, is an explanation of the gospel. And for Paul, the gospel is a gospel of grace. So Paul has already taught us in the letter that everyone has sinned and all of us have fallen short of God's glory. There is nobody who's lived according to God's standards because all of us are trapped in sin. Now, Paul acknowledges that theoretically, it is possible to be right with God by obeying his commandments. But because God is perfectly holy, only perfect obedience to every commandment all of the time will satisfy his holiness. And that's where our passage starts today. Look at Romans 10 verse 5. Paul says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So if you do the commandments, you will live by them. But the only person who has ever lived in perfect obedience to God's commandments all the time is our Lord Jesus Christ. Every other person who has ever lived 
every other person who will ever live will fall short of the glory of God. But, says Paul, that doesn't mean that there is no hope for us. On the contrary, Paul has argued that there is every reason for hope. Both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, Paul has shown us that we can be rescued by believing God's promises. So he's shown us that Abraham was rescued by trusting God's promises to him. And we can be rescued today by believing God's promises made in the gospel. This then is a righteous, righteousness that is based on faith rather than a righteousness based on the law. And the righteousness based on faith knows that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. And this is the wonderful hope of the Christian faith. Yes, everyone has fallen short of God's standards. Yes, everyone stands condemned before our Heavenly Father, but everyone can be rescued. Everyone can be saved if they put their trust in the good news of Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying that there is nothing that we need to do to be rescued. There's nothing that we need to do to be brought into relationship with God. There is nothing that we need to do to enjoy everlasting life in a new creation. Because everything has been done for us by the Lord Jesus in his death on the cross. Everything that needs to be done has been done. And we simply have to make the completed work of Jesus the foundation of our lives. Verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So anyone who turns to God trusting this gospel will be saved. It doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you live, this is hope. Verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Paul's logic so far is very simple. Nobody can be put right with God by obeying the law. Everyone can be rescued because of Jesus' death on the cross. All we have to do is trust what God has done for us in Jesus. But Paul now, now takes another step forward in the chain of logic that runs through these verses. All we have to do is trust what God has done for us in Jesus. But how can we put our trust in him if we don't know anything about him? Well, that's the focus of verses 14 to 17. How can people believe in Jesus if they've never heard about him? How can they trust the gospel if they don't know what it is? Well, it's interesting to pause and think how God might solve that problem, isn't it? How might God solve the problem 
of people not knowing the good news of the gospel. Well, God might, I suppose, reveal himself directly to people through dreams and visions. Or he could, in his power, send angels as divine messengers to tell them about Jesus. Or he could, in some extraordinary way, light up the sky so that people can read the message in the clouds. None of those things is beyond our God. But none of those things feature in verses 14 to 17. There is one fundamental, all-important way that people hear the good news of Jesus. And it is simply by Christians talking to them. Verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So says Paul, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the way that people will hear the name of the Lord is by Christians talking to them. God's normal way of spreading this gospel is by Christians speaking. Now, in the Muslim world at the moment, it is really quite common to hear stories of Muslim people experiencing dreams and visions of Jesus Christ. But it's very unusual to hear of Muslim people directly becoming Christians from those dreams or visions. The much more common testimony is that the dream directs them to a Christian and the Christian then shares the gospel with them or gives them a Bible. I was at the Lausanne Congress in Cape Town in 2010 and I heard a story just like that. Uh, a mission worker in a closed Arab country, totally closed to open gospel witness, had a very extraordinary experience. He was driving across the country with his wife. They drove through a small town, and just after they got to the other, other side of the town, the wife said, you must stop the car. We just passed a soldier. He was standing outside a shop with a gun. You've, I'm sure that God wants you to go back and give the man a Bible. Well, the husband was understandably anxious. After all, giving a Bible to a soldier with a gun in a closed Arab country doesn't seem like a very smart move. He confessed they had what you might call a full and frank discussion. (laughs) Then he gave in, turned the car round, and went back to the shop. He grumpily walked up to the soldier and said, my wife told me I had to give you this and handed over a Bible. The soldier burst into tears and said, I had a dream three days ago telling me to be outside this shop on this day and a foreigner would come and give me a book. So it seems that even when God does intervene with remarkable signs and wonders like that, 
he still sends Christians to speak the gospel and give people the word of God. Really very similar to the story of the eunuch in Acts chapter 8. God God could have brought that Ethiopian man to faith in any number of different ways. But he chose to send Philip to teach him the Bible. And the reason for that comes in verse 17. Paul says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So as people hear God's word explained to them, so the Holy Spirit works in their hearts to bring to faith those whom God has called. And it is the working of the word of God and the spirit of God that gives birth to faith in the lives of those that God is calling to himself. And it was that message that captured the hearts of people like Reverend Seeley and Miss Mansbridge. They believed that this gospel was good news for all people everywhere. And they believed that God was sending them so that people on the other side of the world might hear and believe. But of course it's not only people like Reverend Seeley and Miss Mansbridge who are sent by God to share the good news of Jesus. This is not something that is for spiritual superheroes. This is something for every Christian disciple. Jesus said to all his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. This is the ordinary Christian life. So practically, how do we do this? How do we as ordinary Christian men and women, as ordinary disciples of Jesus Christ, how do we witness with our words? Well, I want to suggest one idea to you. It's not the only idea, and it's certainly not the only thing that could be said on this subject. But it's an idea that I think is easily achievable for any of us here this morning. So how do we witness with our words? I want to suggest that you can tell stories. You can tell stories. The reality of the culture that we live in in Australia and that you're living in today in England is that most people know very little about the Christian faith. A friend told me that she went into a jeweler's to buy a cross on a chain for her goddaughter's confirmation as a gift. The girl behind the counter said, we've got two kinds, one with a little man on and one without. She had no idea who the little man was or what the cross represented. That's the culture that we're now living in. Many people know very little about the Christian faith, and that means that they know very little about the stories of the Bible. And so one of the powerful ways that we can witness is by telling people the Bible stories. And we can tell them our own stories, the stories of our own lives, 
and how God has made a difference to us. Actually, that's pretty much the technique that Jesus uses in the New Testament. Have you noticed that uh, when Jesus was asked tricky questions in the New Testament, how did he usually respond? He usually told a story, maybe a parable, maybe another kind of illustration. But sharing the stories of the Bible will be telling people stories now that they have never heard. And it's a great way of sowing the seed of God's word into people's lives. It leaves them with something to remember, something to chew over, so that the word of God stays with them in their hearts. A friend of mine in Australia is brilliant at this. He's learned lots of stories from Luke's gospel. Uh, Sometimes he'll just sit down next to a stranger and say, can I tell you a story? What answer do you think that normally gets? They go, sure. He said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger one said to his father, give me my share of the inheritance. And he might just tell the story of the prodigal son and leave it as a seed that maybe someone else will water. Or maybe the idea of learning to tell Bible stories sounds a bit challenging. But another thing we can do is to tell our own story. To tell our own stories with God included, rather than with God left out. Even just saying simple things like, I was feeling so worried about that, but I spent some time praying, and that really helped me get it into perspective shows that for you, God is a central part of your life who makes a difference to how you live. Now, who knows where those sorts of comments will go? But I think that's what Paul means when he says that our conversation should be seasoned with salt. Because the reality, of course, is that talking about Jesus has never been socially acceptable. It was no more socially acceptable for Miss Mansbridge and Reverend Seeley than it is in our day. But they were convinced that God's word is powerful. They were convinced that people to the ends of the earth needed to hear the gospel. And they went. We don't have to go to West Africa, we don't have to go to Central Asia. We just have to go out our front door. But we need their same confidence in the powerful word of God. Let's pray that God would give us that same boldness with the scriptures, that we would speak them out, that people's lives would be changed and transformed. Heavenly Father, we thank you that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. We pray that you would give us boldness to share our stories, to share the story of the Lord Jesus and of his death on the cross. We pray that you would give us opportunities and boldness to take those opportunities. 
that we might witness with this powerful word of Christ. We pray that as we do that, your Holy Spirit might give people faith that they might come to know Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.